This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, and to find out how you can volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by A. R. Dobbs, San Francisco. The Spy by James Fenimore Cooper. Chapter 28. The owl that loves the gloom of night, the lark salutes the day. The timid dove will coo at hand, but falcons soar away. Song in Duo In a country settled like these states, by people who fled their native land and much-loved firesides, victims of consciences and religious zeal, none of the decencies and solemnities of a Christian death are dispensed with, when circumstances will admit of their exercise. The good woman of the house was a strict adherent to the forms of the church to which she belonged, and having herself been awakened to a sense of her depravity by the ministry of the divine who harangued the people of the adjoining parish, she thought it was from his exhortations only that salvation could be meted out to the short-lived hopes of Henry Wharton. Not that the kind-hearted matron was so ignorant of the doctrines of the religion which she professed as to depend, theoretically, on mortal aid for protection, but she had, to use her own phrase, sat so long under the preaching of good Mr. Blank, that she had unconsciously imbibed a practical reliance on his assistance, for that which her faith should have taught her could come from the Deity alone. With her the consideration of death was at all times awful, and the instant that the sentence of the prisoner was promulgated, she dispatched Caesar, mounted on one of her husband's best horses, in quest of her clerical monitor. This step had been taken without consulting either Henry or his friends, and it was only when the services of Caesar were required on some domestic emergency that she explained the nature of his absence. The youth heard her, at first, with an unconquerable reluctance to admit of such a spiritual guide. But, as our view of the things of this life becomes less vivid, our prejudices and habits cease to retain their influence, and a civil bow of thanks was finally given in requital for the considerate care of the well-meaning woman. The black returned early from his expedition, and, as well as could be gathered from his somewhat incoherent narrative, a minister of God might be expected to arrive in the course of the day. The interruption that we mentioned in our preceding chapter was occasioned by the entrance of the landlady. At the intercession of Dunwoody, orders had been given to the sentinel who guarded the door of Henry's room, that the members of the prisoner's family should, at all times, have free access to his apartment. Caesar was included in this arrangement as a matter of convenience by the officer in command, but strict inquiry and examination was made into the errand of every other applicant for admission. The major had, however, included himself among the relatives of the British officer, and one pledge that no rescue should be attempted, was given in his name for them all. A short conversation was passing between the woman of the house and the corporal of the guard, before the door that the sentinel had already opened in anticipation of the decision of his non-commissioned commandant. "'Would you refuse the consolations of religion to a fellow-creature about to suffer death?' said the matron, with earnest zeal. "'Would you plunge a soul into the fiery furnace and a minister at hand to point out the straight and narrow path?' "'I'll tell you what, good woman,' returned the corporal, gently pushing her away. "'I've no notion of my back being a highway for any man to walk to heaven upon. 
a pretty figure I should make at the pickets for disobeying orders. Just step down and ask Lieutenant Mason, and you may bring in a whole congregation. We have not taken the guard from the foot-soldiers but an hour, and I shouldn't like to have it said that we know less than the militia. Admit the woman, said Dunwoody, sternly, observing for the first time that one of his own corps was on post. The corporal raised his hand to his cap, and fell back in silence. The soldier stood to his arms, and the matron entered. "'Here is a reverend gentleman below, come to soothe the parting soul in the place of our own divine, who is engaged with an appointment that could not be put aside, tis to bury old Mr. Blank. Show him in at once,' said Henry, with feverish impatience. "'But will the sentinel let him pass? I would not wish a friend of Mr. Blank to be rudely stopped on the threshold, and he a stranger.' All eyes were now turned on Dunwoody, who, looking at his watch, spoke a few words with Henry in an undertone, and hastened from the apartment, followed by Francis. The subject of their conversation was a wish expressed by the prisoner for a clergyman of his own persuasion, and a promise from the major that one should be sent from Fishkill Town, through which he was about to pass, on his way to the ferry to intercept the expected return of Harper. Mason soon made his bow at the door, and willingly complied with the wishes of the landlady, and the divine was invited to make his appearance accordingly. The person who was ushered into the apartment, preceded by Caesar, and followed by the matron, was a man beyond the middle age, who might rather be said to approach the downhill of life. In stature he was above the size of ordinary men, though his excessive leanness might contribute in deceiving as to his height. His countenance was sharp and unbending, and every muscle seemed set in rigid compression. No joy or relaxation appeared ever to have dwelt on features that frowned habitually, as if in detestation of the vices of mankind. The brows were beetling, dark, and forbidding, giving the promise of eyes of no less repelling expression, but the organs were concealed, beneath a pair of enormous green goggles through which they glared around with the fierceness that denounced the coming day of wrath. All was fanaticism, uncharitableness, and denunciation. Long, lank hair, a mixture of grey and black, fell down his neck, and in some degree obscured the sides of his face, and, parting on his forehead, fell in either direction in straight and formal screens. On the top of this ungraceful exhibition was laid impending forward, so as to overhang in some measure the whole fabric, a large hat of three equal cocks. His coat was of a rusty black, and his breeches and stockings were of the same colour, his shoes without lustre, and half concealed beneath huge plated buckles. He stalked into the room, and, giving a stiff nod with his head, took the chair offered him by the back in dignified silence. For several minutes no one broke this ominous pause in the conversation. Henry, feeling a repugnance to his guest that he was vainly endeavouring to conquer, and the stranger himself drawing forth occasional sighs and groans that threatened a dissolution of the unequal connection between his sublimated soul and its ungainly tenement. During this death-like penetration, Mr. Wharton, with a feeling nearly allied to that of his son, led Sarah from the apartment. His retreat was noticed by the divine in a kind of scornful disdain, who began to hum the air of a popular psalm tune, giving it the full richness of the twang that distinguishes the eastern psalmody. Footnote. By eastern is meant 
the states of new england which being originally settled by puritans still retain many distinct shades of character End of footnote. caesar said miss peyton hand the gentleman some refreshment he must need it after his ride my strength is not in the things of this life said the divine speaking in a hollow sepulchral voice thrice have i this day held forth in my master's service and fainted not still tis prudent to help this frail tenement of clay for surely the laborer is worthy of his hire opening a pair of enormous jaws he took a good measure of the proffered brandy and suffered it to glide downwards with that sort of facility with which man is prone to sin i apprehend then sir that fatigue will disable you from performing the duties which kindness has inclined you to attempt woman exclaimed the stranger with energy when was i ever known to shrink from a duty but judge not lest ye be judged and fancy not that it is given to mortal eyes to fathom the intentions of the deity nay returned the maiden meekly and slightly disgusted with his jargon i pretend not to judge of either events or the intentions of my fellow-creatures much less those of omnipotence tis well woman tis well cried the minister moving his head with supercilious disdain humility becometh thy sex and lost condition thy weakness driveth thee on headlong like unto the bosom of destruction surprised at this extraordinary deportment but yielding to that habit which urges us to speak reverently on sacred subjects even when perhaps we had better continue silent miss peyton replied there is a power above that can and will sustain us all in well-doing if we seek its support in humility and truth the stranger turned a lowering look at the speaker and then composing himself into an air of self-abasement he continued in the same repelling tones it is not every one that crieth out for mercy that will be heard the ways of providence are not to be judged by men many are called but few chosen it is easier to talk of humility than to feel it are you so humble vile worm as to wish to glorify god by your own damnation if not away with you for a publican and a pharisee such gross fanaticism was uncommon in america and miss peyton began to imbibe the impression that her guest was deranged but remembering that he had been sent by a well-known divine and one of reputation she discarded the idea and with some forbearance observed i may deceive myself in believing that mercy is proffered to all but it is so soothing a doctrine that i would not willingly be undeceived mercy is only for the elect cried the stranger with an unaccountable energy and you are in the valley of the shadow of death are you not a follower of idle ceremonies which belong to the vain church that our tyrants would gladly establish here along with their stamp acts and tea laws answer me that woman and remember that heaven hears your answer are you not of that idolatrous communion i worship at the altars of my fathers said miss peyton motioning to henry for silence but bow to no other idol than my own infirmities 
"'Yes, yes, I know ye, self-righteous and papal as ye are, "'followers of forms and listeners to bookish preaching. "'Think you, woman, that holy Paul had notes in his hand "'to propound the word to the believers?' "'My presence disturbs you,' said Miss Peyton, rising. "'I will leave you with my nephew, "'and offer those prayers in private that I did wish to mingle with his.' "'So saying, she withdrew.' followed by the landlady, who was not a little shocked and somewhat surprised by the intemperate zeal of her new acquaintance, for although the good woman believed that Miss Peyton and her whole church were on the high road to destruction, she was by no means accustomed to hear such offensive and open avowals of their fate. Henry had with difficulty repressed the indignation excited by this unprovoked attack on his meek and unresisting aunt, but as the door closed on her retiring figure, he gave way to his feelings. "'I must confess, sir,' he exclaimed with heat, "'that in receiving a minister of God I thought I was admitting a Christian, and one who, by feeling his own weaknesses, knew how to pity the frailties of others. You have wounded the meek spirit of an excellent woman, and I acknowledge but little inclination to mingle in prayer with so intolerant a spirit.' The minister stood erect with grave composure, following with his eyes in a kind of scornful pity the retiring females, and suffered the expostulation of the youth to be given, as if unworthy of his notice. A third voice, however, spoke. Such a denunciation would have driven many women into fits, but it has answered the purpose well enough, as it is. "'Who's that?' cried the prisoner, in amazement, gazing around the room in quest of the speaker. "'It is I, Captain Wharton,' said Harvey Birch, removing the spectacles and exhibiting his piercing eyes, shining under a pair of false eyebrows. "'Good heavens! Harvey! Silence!' said the peddler solemnly. "'Tis a name not to be mentioned, and least of all here within the heart of the American army.' Birch paused and gazed around him for a moment with an emotion exceeding the base passion of fear, and then continued in a gloomy tone— there are a thousand halters in that very name, and little hope would there be left me of another escape, should I be again taken. This is a fearful venture that I am making, but I could not sleep in quiet, and know that an innocent man was about to die the death of a dog, when I might save him. No, said Henry, with a glow of generous feeling on his cheek, if the risk to you be so heavy, retire as you came, and leave me to my fate. Dunwoody is making, even now, powerful exertions on my behalf, and if he meets with Mr. Harper in the course of the night, my liberation is certain. Harper! echoed the peddler, remaining with his hands raised in the act of replacing the spectacles. What do you know of Harper? And why do you think he will do you a service? I have his promise. You remember our recent meeting in my father's dwelling, and he then gave me an unasked promise to assist me. Yes, but— do you know him? That is, why do you think he has the power? Or what reason have you for believing he will remember his word? If there ever was the stamp of truth or simple honest benevolence in the countenance of man, it shone in his, said Henry. Besides, Dunwoody has powerful friends in the rebel army, and it would be better that I take the chance where I am, than thus to expose you to certain death if detected." "'Captain Wharton,' said Birch, looking guardedly around, and speaking with impressive seriousness of manner, "'if I fail you, all fail you. No Harper nor Dunwoody can save your life. 
unless you get out with me, and that within the hour, you die to-morrow on the gallows of a murderer. Yes, such are their laws. The man who fights and kills and plunders is honored. But he who serves his country as a spy, no matter how faithfully, no matter how honestly, lives to be reviled, or dies like the vilest criminal. You forget, Mr. Birch, said the youth, a little indignantly, that I am not a treacherous lurking spy, who deceives to betray, but innocent of the charge imputed to me. The blood rushed over the pale, meagre features of the peddler, until his face was one glow of fire, but it passed quickly away as he replied, I have told you truth. Caesar met me as he was going on his errand this morning, and with him I have laid the plan which, if executed as I wish, will save you. Otherwise you are lost. And I again tell you that no other power on earth, not even Washington, can save you. I submit, said the prisoner, yielding to his earnest manner, and goaded by the fears which were thus awakened anew. The peddler beckoned him to be silent, and walking to the door, opened it with the stiff, formal air with which he had entered the apartment. Friend, let no one enter, he said to the sentinel. We are about to go to prayer, and would wish to be alone. I don't know that any will wish to interrupt you, returned the soldier with a waggish leer of his eye, but should they be so disposed, I have no power to stop them, if they be of the prisoner's friends. I have my orders, and must mind them, whether the Englishman goes to heaven or not. Audacious sinner, said the pretended priest, have you not the fear of God before your eyes? I tell you, as you will dread punishment at the last day, to let none of the idolatrous communion enter, to mingle in the prayers of the righteous. Phew! What a noble commander you'd make for Sergeant Hollister! You'd preach him dumb in a roll-call. Harky, I'll thank you not to make such a noise when you hold forth as to drown our bugles, or you may get a poor fellow a short horn at his grog for not turning out to the evening parade. If you want to be alone, have you no knife to stick over the door-latch that you must have a troop of horse to guard your meeting-house? The peddler took the hint and closed the door immediately, using the precaution suggested by the dragoon. You overact your part, said young Wharton, in constant apprehension of discovery. Your zeal is too impertinent. For a foot-soldier, and them eastern militia it might be, said Harvey, turning a bag upside down that Caesar now handed him. But these dragoons are fellows that you must brag down. A faint heart, Captain Wharton, would do but little here. But come, here is a black shroud for your good-looking countenance, taking at the same time a parchment mask and fitting it to the face of Henry. The master and the man must change places for a season. I don't think he looks a bit like me, said Caesar, with disgust, as he surveyed his young master with his new complexion. "'Stop a minute, Caesar,' said the peddler, with the lurking drollery that at times formed part of his manner, "'till we get on the wool.' "'He worse than ever now,' cried the discontented African. "'Hot and colored man like a sheep. I never see such a lip, Harvey. He most as big as a sausage.' Great pains had been taken in forming the different articles used in the disguise of Captain Wharton and when arranged under the skilful superintendence of the peddler, they formed together a transformation that would easily escape detection from any but an extraordinary observer. 
The mask was stuffed and shaped in such a manner as to preserve the peculiarities as well as the color of the African visage, and the wig was so artfully formed of black and white wool as to imitate the pepper-and-salt color of Caesar's own head, and to exact plaudits from the black himself, who thought it an excellent counterfeit in everything but quality. "'There is but one man in the American army who could detect you, Captain Wharton,' said the peddler, surveying his work with satisfaction. "'and he is just now out of our way. "'And who is he?' "'The man who made you prisoner. "'He would see your white skin through a plank. "'But strip both of you. "'Your clothes must be exchanged from head to foot.' "'Caesar, who had received minute instructions "'from the peddler in their morning interview, "'immediately commenced throwing aside his coarse garments, "'which the youth took up and prepared to invest himself with, "'unable, however, to repress a few signs of loathing.' In the manner of the peddler there was an odd mixture of care and humour. The former was the result of a perfect knowledge of their danger, and the means necessary to be used in avoiding it, and the latter proceeded from the unavoidably ludicrous circumstances before him, acting on an indifference which sprang from habit and long familiarity with such scenes as the present. "'Here, Captain,' he said, taking up some loose wool and beginning to stuff the stockings of Caesar, which were already on the leg of the prisoner." "'Some judgment is necessary in shaping this limb. "'You will have to display it on horseback, "'and the southern dragoons are so used to the brittle shins "'that should they notice your well-turned calf, "'they'd know at once it never belonged to a black.' "'Golly!' said Caesar, with a chuckle "'that exhibited a mouth open from ear to ear. "'Massa Harry breeches fit.' "'Anything but your leg,' said the peddler, "'coolly pursuing the toilet of Henry. "'Slip on the coat, Captain, overall.' "'Upon my word, you'd pass well at a pinkster frolic. "'And here, Caesar, place this powdered wig over your curls, "'and be careful and look out of the window whenever the door is open, "'and on no account speak, or you will betray all.' "'Suppose Harvey tink a colored man ain't got a tongue like other folk,' "'grumbled the black as he took the station assigned to him. "'Everything now was arranged for action, "'and the peddler very deliberately went over the whole of his injunctions "'to the two actors in the scene.' The captain he conjured to dispense with his erect military carriage, and for a season to adopt the humble paces of his father's negro, and Caesar he enjoined to silence and disguise so long as he could possibly maintain them. Thus prepared, he opened the door, and called aloud to the sentinel who had retired to the farthest end of the passage in order to avoid receiving any of that spiritual comfort which he felt was the sole property of another. "'Let the woman of the house be called,' said Harvey, in the solemn key of his assumed character, "'and let her come alone. The prisoner is in a happy train of meditation, and must not be led from his devotions.' Caesar sank his face between his hands, and when the soldier looked into the apartment, he thought he saw his charge in deep abstraction. Casting a glance of huge contempt at the divine, he called aloud for the good woman of the house— she hastened at the summons, in earnest zeal, entertaining a secret hope that she was to be admitted to the gossip of a deathbed repentance. "'Sister,' said the minister, in the authoritative tones of a master, "'have you in the house the Christian criminal's last moments? Or thoughts on eternity for them who die a violent death?' "'I never heard of the book,' said the matron in astonishment. "'Tis not unlikely. There are many books you have never heard of. 
"'It is impossible for this poor penitent to pass in peace "'without the consolations of that volume. "'One hour's reading in it is worth an age of man's preaching.' "'Bless me, what a treasure to possess! "'When was it put out?' "'It was first put out at Geneva in the Greek language, "'and then translated at Boston. "'It is a book, woman, that should be in the hands of every Christian, "'especially such as die upon the gallows.' "'Have a horse prepared instantly for this black, "'who shall accompany me to my brother, "'and I will send down the volume yet in season. "'Brother, compose thy mind. "'You are now in the narrow path to glory.' "'Caesar wriggled a little in his chair, "'but he had sufficient recollection "'to conceal his face with hands "'that were, in their turn, concealed by gloves. "'The landlady departed to comply "'with this very reasonable request,' and the group of conspirators were again left to themselves. "'This is well,' said the peddler, "'but the difficult task is to deceive the officer who commands the guard. "'He is lieutenant to Lawton, "'and has learned some of the captain's own cunning in these things. "'Remember, Captain Wharton,' continued he with an air of pride, "'that now is the moment when everything depends on our coolness.' "'My fate can be made but little worse than it is at present, my worthy fellow,' said Henry. "'But for your sake I will do all that in me lies. "'And wherein can I be more forlorn and persecuted than I am now?' asked the peddler, with that wild incoherence which often crossed his manner. "'But I have promised one to save you, and to him I have never yet broken my word.' "'And who is he?' said Henry, with awakened interest." no one. The man soon returned, and announced that the horses were at the door. Harvey gave the captain a glance, and led the way down the stairs, first desiring the woman to leave the prisoner to himself, in order that he might digest the wholesome mental food that he had so lately received. A rumor of the odd character of the priest had spread from the sentinel at the door to his comrades, so that when Harvey and Wharton reached the open space before the building, they found a dozen idle dragoons loitering about with the waggish intention of quizzing the fanatic, and employed in affected admiration of the steeds. "'A fine horse,' said the leader, in this plan of mischief, "'but a little low in flesh, I suppose from hard labour in your calling.' "'My calling may be laboursome to both myself and this faithful beast, "'but then a day of settling is at hand "'that will reward me for all my outgoings and incomings,' "'said Birch, putting his foot in the stirrup and preparing to mount. "'You work for pay, then, as we fight for it,' cried another of the party. "'Even so, is not the labourer worthy of his hire?' "'Come, suppose you give us a little preaching. "'We have a leisure moment just now, "'and there's no telling how much good you might do, "'a set of reprobates like us in a few words. "'Here, mount this horse-block, "'and take your text where you please.' "'The men now gathered in eager delight around the peddler, "'who, glancing his eye expressively towards the captain "'who had been suffered to mount, replied, "'Doubtless for such is my duty. "'But, Caesar, you can ride up the road and deliver the note. "'The unhappy prisoner will be wanting the book, for his hours are numbered.' "'Aye, aye, go along, Caesar, and get the book,' shouted half a dozen voices, "'all crowding eagerly around the ideal priest in anticipation of a frolic. 
The peddler inwardly dreaded that, in their unceremonious handling of himself and garments, his hat and wig might be displaced, when detection would be certain. He was therefore fain to comply with their request, ascending the horseback, after hemming once or twice, and casting several glances at the captain, who continued immovable, he commenced as follows. "'I shall call your attention, my brethren, to that portion of Scripture which you will find in the second book of Samuel, and which is written in the following words. And the king lamented over Abner, and said, Died Abner as a fool dieth? Thy hands were not bound, nor thy feet put into fetters. As a man falleth before wicked men, so fellest thou. And all the people wept again over him. Caesar, ride forward, I say, and obtain the book as directed. Thy master is groaning in spirit even now for the want of it. An excellent text, cried the dragoons. Go on, go on. Let the snowball stay. He wants to be edified as well as another. What are you at there, scoundrels? cried Lieutenant Mason, as he came in sight from a walk he had taken to sneer at the evening parade of the regiment of militia. "'Away with every man of you to your quarters, and let me find that each horse is cleaned and littered when I come round.' The sound of the officer's voice operated like a charm, and no priest could desire a more silent congregation, although he might possibly have wished for one that was more numerous. Mason had not done speaking, when it was reduced to the image of Caesar only. The peddler took that opportunity to mount, but he had to preserve the gravity of his movements, for the remark of the troopers, upon the condition of their beasts, was but too just, and a dozen dragoon horses stood saddled and bridled at hand, ready to receive their riders at a moment's warning. "'Well, have you bidded the poor fellow within,' said Mason, "'that he can take his last ride under the curb of divinity, old gentleman?' "'There is evil in thy conversation, profane man,' cried the priest, raising his hands and casting his eyes upwards in holy horror. So I will depart from thee unhurt, as Daniel was liberated from the lion's den. Off with you for a hypocritical, psalm-singing, canting rogue in disguise, said Mason scornfully. By the life of Washington, it worries an honest fellow to see such voracious beasts of prey ravaging a country for which he sheds his blood. If I had you on a Virginia plantation for a quarter of an hour— I'd teach you to worm the tobacco with the turkeys. I leave you and shake the dust off my shoes, that no remnant of this wicked hole may tarnish the vestments of the godly. Start, or I will shake the dust from your jacket, designing knave, a fellow to be preaching to my men. There's Hollister's put the devil in them by his exhorting. The rascals were getting too conscientious to strike a blow that would raise the skin. But hold! "'Whither do you travel, Master Blackie, in such godly company?' "'He goes,' said the minister, hastily speaking for his companion, "'to return with a book of much condolence and virtue to the sinful youth above, "'whose soul will speedily become white, even as his outwards are black and unseemly. "'Would you deprive a dying man of the consolation of religion?' "'No, no, poor fellow, his fate is bad enough.' A famous good breakfast his prim body of an aunt gave us. But hark ye, Mr. Revelation, if the youth must die, secundum arlem, 
Let it be under a gentleman's direction, and my advice is that you never trust that skeleton of yours among us again, or I will take the skin off and leave you naked. Out upon thee for a reviler and scoffer of goodness, said Birch, moving slowly and with due observance of clerical dignity down the road, followed by the imaginary Caesar. But I leave thee and that behind me that will prove thy condemnation, and take from thee a hearty and joyful deliverance. Damn him, muttered the trooper. The fellow rides like a stake, and his legs stick out like the cocks of his hat. I wish I had him below these hills, where the law is not over-particular. I'd— Corporal of the guard! Corporal of the guard! shouted the sentinel in the passage to the chambers. "'Corporal of the guard! Corporal of the guard!' The subaltern flew up the narrow stairway that led to the room of the prisoner, and demanded the meaning of the outcry. The soldier was standing at the open door of the apartment, looking in with a suspicious eye on the supposed British officer. On observing his lieutenant, he fell back with habitual respect, and replied with an air of puzzled thought, "'I don't know, sir, but just now the prisoner looked queer. Ever since the preacher has left him, he don't look as he used to do.' but, gazing intently over the shoulder of his officer, it must be him, too. There is the same powdered head, and the darn in the coat where he was hit the day we had the last brush with the enemy. And then all this noise is occasioned by your doubting whether that poor gentleman is your prisoner or not, is it, sirrah? Who the devil do you think it can be else? I don't know who else it can be, returned the fellow sullenly. But he has grown thicker and shorter, if it is he. "'And see for yourself, sir, he shakes all over, like a man in an ague.' This was but too true. Caesar was an alarmed auditor of this short conversation, and, from congratulating himself upon the dexterous escape of his young master, his thoughts were very naturally beginning to dwell upon the probable consequences to his own person. The pause that succeeded the last remark of the sentinel in no degree contributed to the restoration of his faculties. Lieutenant Mason was busied in examining with his own eyes the suspected person of the black, and Caesar was aware of the fact, by stealing a look through a passage under one of his arms, that he had left expressly for the purpose of reconnoitering. Captain Lawton would have discovered the fraud immediately, but Mason was by no means so quick-sighted as his commander. He therefore turned rather contemptuously to the soldier, and, speaking in an undertone, observed, "'That Anabaptist, Methodistical, Quaker, psalm-singin' rascal has frightened the boy with his farrago about flames and brimstone. I'll step in and cheer him with a little rational conversation.' "'I have heard of fear making a man white,' said the soldier, drawing back and staring as if his eyes would start from their sockets. "'But it has changed the royal captain to a black.' The truth was that Caesar, unable to hear what Mason uttered in a low voice, and having every fear aroused in him by what had already passed, incautiously removed the wig a little from one of his ears, in order to hear the better, without in the least remembering that its colour might prove fatal to his disguise. The sentinel had kept his eyes fastened on the prisoner, and noticed the action— the attention of Mason was instantly drawn to the same object, and forgetting all delicacy for a brother of officer in distress, or, in short, forgetting everything but the censure that might alight on his corps, the lieutenant sprang forward and seized the terrified African by the throat. 
for no sooner had Caesar heard his color named than he knew his discovery was certain, and at the first sound of Mason's heavy boot on the floor he arose from his seat and retreated precipitately to a corner of the room. "'Who are you?' cried Mason, dashing the head of the old man against the angle of the wall at each interrogatory. "'Who the devil are you? And where is the Englishman? Speak, thou thundercloud! Answer me, you jackdaw, or I'll hang you on the gallows of the spy!' Caesar continued firm. Neither the threats nor the blows could extract any reply until the lieutenant, by a very natural transition in the attack, sent his heavy boot forward in a direction that brought it in direct contact with the most sensitive part of the negro, his shin. The most obdurate heart could not have exacted further patience, and Caesar instantly gave in. The first words he spoke were, "'Golly, massa, you tink I got no feelin'!' "'By heavens!' shouted the lieutenant. "'It is the negro himself!' "'Scoundrel, where is your master, and who was the priest?' While speaking he made a movement as if about to renew the attack, but Caesar cried aloud for mercy, promising to tell all that he knew. "'Who was the priest?' replied the dragoon, drawing back his formidable leg, and holding it in threatening suspense. "'Harvey! Harvey!' cried Caesar, dancing from one leg to the other, as he thought each member in turn might be assailed. "'Harvey who, you black villain!' cried the impatient lieutenant, as he executed a full measure of vengeance by letting his leg fly. "'Birch!' shrieked Caesar, falling on his knees, the tears rolling in large drops over his shining face. "'Harvey Birch!' echoed the trooper, hurling the black from him and rushing from the room. "'To arms! To arms! Fifty guineas for the life of the peddler spy! Give no quarter to either! Mount! Mount! To arms! To horse!' During the uproar occasioned by the assembling of the dragoons, who all rushed tumultuously to their horses, Caesar rose from the floor, where he had been thrown by Mason, and began to examine into his injuries. Happily for himself he had alighted on his head, and consequently sustained no material damage. End of chapter 28